Chapter Four of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn S. Shea. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Four Narrating Alice's Visit to a Restaurant. Alice, in the ensuing six or seven weeks, must have missed many a supper. It was not uncommon for her to get a book one day and return it the next. She not only read each volume, but she retained what she read. Her memory was most unusual. On one occasion, on coming down to the school office, I heard, as I reached the vestibule, a silvery voice. It was the voice of Alice in the outer office. I paused, and for nearly five minutes listened. It was not my intention, of course, to play the eavesdropper. But Alice was not engaged in conversation. She was telling the story of Aladdin and the wonderful lamp. This fact I caught at once, and then, like the wedding guest of the ancient mariner, I could not choose but hear. The flow of the language was so easy, the words were so well chosen, the sentences so satisfying, that I inferred she must be reading. But, on second thought, I rejected the inference. No child of her age could read with intonations so easy and so natural. The girl, I surmised, must have committed the entire story to memory. After a time, I peeped in through the open door. Michael, seated at his desk, was gazing spellbound at Alice Morrow, his spellbinder. His jaw had dropped, and his eyes were wide with wonder of Wonderland. Here was romance in its primitive innocence. I was hesitating as to entering, when Alice, in a mad gesture, intended to signify the rubbing of the lamp, swum partly round and caught my eye. "'Oh, good morning, father. I was just telling Michael about Aladdin. Did you hear me?' "'I did.' Tell me, Alice, did you learn the story by heart? I read it twice, father, and I know it. You see, I read all the best stories twice, and then I tell them to our family. Oh, we have an awfully good time. We can put out the lamp. That's the best way for a story, in the dark. Then you can see everything just as it is happening. Did you ever listen to a story in the dark, father? Michael never did. I'll try it, Alice, on your recommendation. It saves light, too, pursued Alice, and if you haven't had any supper, you don't know the difference. Isn't Papa working now? He's going to start next week. Come inside, Alice. She followed me and I closed the door. Alice, what did you have for breakfast? Beans, father. Anything else? No, father. Beans are very healthy, Mama says. How long has your father been out of work? Just two weeks. He had a sick spell last Sunday a week ago, and he lost his job. My pa says he was just born for hard luck. I wish you knew him. He's just the nicest pa you ever read about. He tells us what he's going to do for us when his ship comes in. The name of the ship is the Hardly Ever, he says. When the Hardly Ever comes in, he's going to buy me a library full of all the fairy tales ever written. He's going to get Elsie an automobile, and my little brother Francis a Dublin Express, and roller skates, and a sled, and my littlest sister Margaret, a collection of the finest dolls in the city, and Mama, a house in the suburbs with a cook to do the cooking and a maid to do the sewing, and a little nigger girl with black face and chiny eyes to nurse the baby, and a pocketbook, a big one, full of ten-dollar gold pieces. Isn't that fine? It certainly is. When does your father expect the ship to come in? He won't tell. He says it's a secret. The captain of the ship is Captain Romance, and the first mate is Mr. Maybe. 
I'm afraid, Alice, a good many things will happen before the good ship hardly ever. Captain Romance comes in. I guess so, but it's nice to think of. We talk about it every night. Are you hungry, Alice? Just a little. You see, I have no headache today. When I have a headache, I'm not hungry at all. And how about Elsie? Oh, Elsie, she's always hungry. You ought to see her eat. I mean, when she gets a chance. Go and get Elsie and come back here. Presently, with Elsie clinging to one hand and Alice to the other, I was walking down Sycamore to Fifth, making a vain effort at dignity. With one little girl hopping like a swallow and chattering like a wren, and the other, in her eagerness to take in all sights and sounds, walking now sideways, now backwards, and now not at all, and both clinging to my hands, locomotion, while possible, was anything but dignified. There is, on Fifth Street, between Sycamore and Main, an eating house called, not without propriety, the ideal cafetier. Into this we entered and seated ourselves at a table. Two small beefsteaks, rolls, and coffee for two. I said to the neat-handed Phyllis of the establishment. "'Aren't you going to eat anything, father?' inquired Alice. I explained that a breakfast just taken would make such an attempt on my part ill-advised, and presently was enjoying the meal vicariously. Elsie, serious and solemn-eyed, went to work with a will, while Alice seemed to play with her food. Seemed, I say, for in the long run her execution quite equaled Elsie's. Within a quarter of an hour there was a pair of clean plates, such as Jack Sprat and his wife might be well be proud of. "'I'd like to come here again,' said little Elsie. "'That's the sort of meal I like.' "'Would that be all, sir?' asked the Phyllis. "'Thank you, yes.' "'I hope you enjoyed your meal, children,' continued Phyllis, inspired to this kindly wish, by the shining eyes and more than placid content of the two innocents. "'We did, very much. Thank you, miss.' answered Alice, and I hope, miss, that you are feeling quite well this morning. You bet, answered Phyllis, not saying, as I could see by her wistful glance at me, exactly what she wanted to. The poor girl, like so many of her class, said not what she wished to say, but what she could. Unpityingly, we call such lack of expression vulgar. You have a very sweet dimple on your chin, continued Alice serenely, and I dearly love dimples, especially dimples on the chin. I hope, miss, your family are all well. I should say, answered Phyllis, now anxious to get away. It's very nice of you to take such nice care of us, isn't it, Elsie? It is, returned Elsie decidedly. Phyllis was dumb. Red signals of distress were spreading over her features. Considering it time to bring this delightful interchange of civilities to an end, I arose. Elsie made a dash for my hand. Elsie, said Alice, shaking her finger at her, you forget how often Mamma has told you. Elsie, looking a trifle disconcerted, turned and stood behind her chair, fastened her eyes meekly on Alice, and waited for further orders. Then Alice, as though she and Elsie were all alone, made a big sign of the cross, her little sister following her example. We return thee thanks, O Lord, for the benefits received of thy bounty through Christ our Lord. As Alice pronounced these words in tones which reached the cook at one end of the place, the cashier at the other, both heads were bowed, four little eyes closed, and two pairs of hands were clasped in unstudied ritual. Amen, cried Elsie with vibrant earnestness and solemnity. 
then each got a hand and the procession a little more difficult in the way of actual progress than before made towards the cashier's desk the cashier as it happened on this particular day was no less a person than the owner of the restaurant a slight bright-eyed trim affable woman a widow who taking the business apparently at its last gasp had by her attention to detail her urbanity and her executive ability raised it to life within a week and within three months to a paying concern she had from her august position behind the cash register taken in with kindly interest the children's deaf performance with knife and fork she had listened with delight to the conversation between alice and phyllis and when grace was said by the children the tears came into her eyes i understood just a few weeks before the little lad of hers who night after night had lived at her knees now i lay me down to sleep had said that sweet prayer for the last time said it with just such faith and innocence as the little girls had pronounced their grace and then had laid himself down to a sleep which this side the grave knows no waking as she took the money with a smiling nod of thanks she was eyeing the children how do you do ma'am said alice making her famous curtsy elsie attempted the same acrobatic feat with partial success father where did you get those two little angels children you must come again come any time we'd be very glad to answered alice wouldn't we elsie oh yes asserted elsie earnestly poor queried the proprietor in my ears very i whispered then she slipped something into my hand for them she whispered it was a ten-dollar gold piece good-bye you little dears she continued coming from behind the counter and kissing each we proceeded in silence along fifth street a silence of several seconds broken by alice that lady is a friend she said and so she proved to be on reaching the office i telephoned miss margaret asking her to take up the moral case again then mrs sanders the good woman who in her charity took charge of the lunchroom for the children devoting three hours a day to the task chancing to enter my office i told her what i knew of the moral case for the present i said I'm going to send those children up to you at lunchtime each day. Give them everything they want and charge it to me. All right, father, said Mrs. Sanders, with an enigmatical grin. The enigma of that grin was solved subsequently. No bill ever came to me. Mrs. Sanders paid it out of her own pocket. End of chapter 4 Recording by Maria Therese